We're continuing on our series in relationships, and before I do that, I just wanna pray and, and just give this time to, to God. Yeah, God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that the same Holy Spirit that was with us as we woke up, was with us as we ate breakfast, all the conversations that were had along the way to church, the good, the bad, the ugly, the, the little, little fights along the way, the same spirit that is, is here with us this morning, God, you are here, you are there, you're present. And I thank you that you're present in your word. And so this morning, I, I pray that you would, um, yeah, reveal yourself to us. Would you soften our hearts so we can hear um, what it is you want us to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In the late 1970s, at Laney High School in North Carolina, a coach by the name of Pop Herring was going through his usual early fall tryout process for his senior boys basketball team. Throughout this process, certain boys made the team, and like so many in other years, there's a collection of them that did not. What was unique about this year was that a certain man by the name, young man by the name of Michael Jordan was left off this specific senior team. The decision to be cut from this team and placed on the JV team, a lower level, not only haunted MJ's career, but spurred him on to six championships in the 90s, a handful of MVPs along the way, and unanimously probably the best NBA player of all time. This decision is one that he never got over. He never got over this decision by this coach to cut him in his high school years, to the point that in his Hall of Fame speech in 2009, he even said, quote, I want to make sure you understood, dude, you made a mistake. <laughs> and if you watch a clip of Michael Jordan today, you can tell that this man, while motivated by these wrongs, has harbored these wrongs. This is the fuel that has pushed him to accomplish things. But at what cost? Underneath that, there, there seems to be a, a, a bitterness, a resentment towards anyone at any point in his career that wronged him. How about another story? This one is from Corey Ten Boom. These are her words, from, a little excerpt from her story. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands, People were filling out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, they collected their wraps, and in silence, they left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way against the others, one moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, 
the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. And I could see my sister's frail body ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. My sister Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. And now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so confidently of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than took the, take the hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he, one prisoner among these thousands of women? But I remember him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood froze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God forgive, has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he possibly erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult decision I'd ever have to make. Jesus, help me, I prayed. I can lift my hand, I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to fill and flood my whole be being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. And I had never known God so love, God's love so intensely as I did then. Two stories of people being wronged. Two very different levels of the offense and two different outcomes. One leading to freedom despite the circumstances that she would have grown up in and the other to a harboring resentment. And I don't wanna speak for MJ, but maybe there's some captivity there. Now forgiveness at first doesn't seem like the most complicated of topics, right? I feel like a lot of people are down for it. It's one of those moralistic traits that a majority of people would say that they subscribe to. In a recent study done, research showed that two in three, or 67% of North American society, would say that they would describe themselves as forgiving people. Yet in that same study, 90% people said that they have someone to forgive in their own life that they haven't quite built up the courage to do so. However, 58% of these same people said that there are things that people can do that garner no forgiveness. So while it may seem like forgiveness is one of those things that has been mutually accepted as a potentially good Christian practice, the reality is that is not true. So if you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. It'll be up on the screen. Awesome. It says this, If anyone has caused grief... 
He has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote, what, wrote you was, I, was to see if you would stand the test to be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now this passage is interesting because it's not one of those more typical uh, Jesus parables where he kind of lays out a story and there's levels to it, but the gist is kind of there. You're like, okay, he's teaching us about forgiveness here and we get that. But in all of Paul's letters, and this is true of a lot of scripture, is that we are dropped into the middle of a conversation that is happening between Paul and a church community. We might read this this morning, but we are quite removed from this relationship and the relationship that Paul has had with this church. This is the second letter to the church in Corinth. And so at this point, there are things that have gone on that he is addressing. And in this section specifically, he is addressing wrongs that have happened. A lot of scholars actually point to the specific situation that Paul is talking about back in 1 Corinthians, his first letter in chapter 5 where Paul was addressing the sexual immorality that was happening in the church by a certain man, despite him telling them to smarten up and not live in the way of the world. Should be on the screen, but I'll read it quickly for us. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So in light of this situation, it seems like they, the church in Corinth, have responded in a way where this man has been dealt with for his wrongdoing. But now Paul is basically saying in 2 Corinthians, look, he has wronged not just me, but the entire body. He's hurt a lot of us in the process. But now it's actually time to forgive him. He has been in sorrow for a long time and it's actually better that we forgive him for his wrongdoing. Which brings me to my first point, that wrongdoings do not just affect the individual, but it actually affects the entire community. You see, when wrongs are done, it is not just me as an individual who feels the effect of it, but rather the entire community at hand. I wonder if Paul had this in mind when he was writing in his first letter to church in Corinth in chapter 12 where he talks about how the entire body is made up of different parts, all different parts, all important to the church body, and how when certain parts of the body struggle, we all struggle. And when we're doing well, we're all doing well. There's a collective sense, there's a feeling 
where you, you, you rise with the body and you fall with the body. There's a sense of we're all in this together, which I think goes against maybe the modern oversimplification of people wrongdoing and forgiveness, where it's our individualistic little worlds and what I've wronged someone else with and what someone else has wronged me with stays between us. But in a church and in a community, the hurt is felt much wider than that. On a large scale, we have seen the effect of this rip through organizations over the last few years. It does not take much to look up a story about someone at the top of an organization, whether it's a CEO, a CFO, a pastor, a manager, who has had a failure and has sinned and the effects that that has had on the entirety of that organization or church or community. Things, well, and, that, and what happens out of that is often change needs to happen and there's, and there's hurt. That's not just an isolated situation. There needs to be, uh, yeah, there needs to be something that happens there. But on the other hand, and the second point I wanna make is that forgiveness is not just for our sake and our freedom, but it is actually for them as well, even if the person doesn't deserve it. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse seven, it says, now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by the excessive sorrow. Now, I don't know about you, but when we eventually do get around to forgiving, the language around it in culture is often that when you refuse to forgive, it does something to your own soul, which is true. Think about MJ harboring a resentment against a coach unwilling to forgive him. Or think about refusing to forgive a family member for a wrong or a hurt that they have caused. Oftentimes, the person who is hurting the most in those situations is the person harboring the resentment that can't seem to forgive. But forgiveness can often be framed in a me way. And while I do do this thing for this person, the reality is, is it's actually for my own sake. There's a release that happens when I forgive someone. But Paul, in this case, is saying forgive for his sake. Forgive for the person who has wronged you. He has committed adultery. He has most likely gone through some sort of church discipline at this point. He is someone who has done some pretty grotesque things that have hurt the community. But the call by Paul is to forgive him for his sake because of the anguish and hurt that he is feeling. Again, this feels countercultural. When someone has done something that has hurt us, even to this level, forgiveness feels already like a stretch. But to do it for their good, for their well-being, it feels, it feels too good to be true or too hard to actually be accomplished. But Jesus, teaching his disciples about this, when he was talking about love, had this to say. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, our love is not measured by those, by our ease of which we can forgive those who are easy to forgive in our life. 
our love is going to often be measured by how we respond to those who are hard to love and hard to forgive. Rob Reimer says this, that the single greatest indicator that we've been infected with divine love is our capacity to love our enemies. It is the mark of the Father in our lives. It is hard to forgive those who have hurt us, not just for my own sake, but for their sake. But that's what Paul calls us to here. And third, besides all of those things, we forgive out of obedience. Besides all the things that we can talk about when it comes to forgiveness, the reality is that we are called to simply forgive because scripture is filled with the invitation to forgive. And not just that, but the whole story of scripture comes to this place of the cross where forgiveness happens. In Genesis 1, right at the beginning of the story, God creates a world that is so good. And two pages later, not far into the story, we're, in, we're welcomed, or he welcomes in humanity into the, into the equation, and things get messed up. There's brokenness in relationship. And I would say that the rest of the story of scripture is God forgiving his people and trying to rewire their heart to love him again, to pursue him all the way to the cross where Jesus takes on all of our suffering and sin and brokenness and shame. We really don't deserve that. We don't deserve that, but he grants that to us. So when we are obedient to him in forgiveness, he gives us grace to do the very thing that's hard to do. You think Corey Tenboom found that moment easy on her own strength? Remember that prayer that she prayed moments before, and the Holy Spirit comes and helps her in that moment. And what is so cool is that Paul says that in this moment, in this act of obedience, you are also doing so in the, in the presence of Jesus. The word presence here is like a face-to-face -face moment where he is present during the very moment of forgiveness. I think it's such a powerful image to imagine Jesus in the room as you face hard conversations of forgiveness to those who have hurt you. But he is there and he is present. But the reality is that this obedience takes courage. It's a courageous act to forgive those who have hurt you. And the reality is we are called to do so. Rob Reimer again says this, forgiveness is a matter of obedience, not a matter of more faith. Forgiveness is your responsibility and choice, not God's responsibility. Forgiveness is the, du is the duty of a faithful follower made possible by the grace he or she has received. You see, you have to choose to forgive. You have to resolve to release people from your debt. You have to determine not to get even, not to hold on to a grudge. I love this last line. It is a duty of the servant of a cross-bearing savior. That's our role. And notice that the responsibility isn't just, oh, well, like Jesus will do that on my behalf or God will do that or like I don't really have to forgive. No, we are called to forgive. We are agents of reconciliation in this world and that's a part of the calling on our lives is to forgive. And lastly, 
this, po- this passage points us to forgive so that Satan does not get a stronghold in our life. Elephant in the room, in most churches in the West, that Satan does exist. He's defeated by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection, but we live now in the now and the not yet moment where he is still causing all sorts of chaos before the final blow happens and the second coming of Jesus. And I think one of the ways that he loves to create chaos is when he creeps into relationships through parts of our hearts that have not forgiven those who've hurt us. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. The Greek word for foothold is topos, an inhabited place. Paul is warning us to deal with our anger quickly, lest Satan gets the upper hand in our souls. If we don't take the high ground and forgive, Satan will take up ground in our souls. And that's kind of scary to think about. And that puts some urgency in it as well. Here's a lighter example from our marriage, and I did ask permission to share this. Preface that. So Katie and I decided to start off the new year by purchasing a dog. I guess you could say we, we got a dog. It's not really an investment. There he is. His, yeah, he's pretty cute. Um, it's not really, yeah, a purchase dog. We got him. It's, it's good. We bought him. His name is Chance. Um, Chance from Homeward Bound. Chance the rapper. Chance the crapper now. Whatever you want to go with. I don't know if I'm allowed to say crap on Sundays, but here I am. But we were on a walk recently, um, actually with Edward. Edward here? I didn't ask Edward for permission, but he plays a very minor role in this, in this story. That's actually Edward's only role in it. I just, we're walking with Edward and his golden retriever. Um, so Chance has been doing really good, at least in my eyes. And um, Katie is an incredible dog trainer. Who knew? Wow. Like, besides youth work and all these other things, that, like nutrition, she's also very good at training a dog. I, on the other hand... I like the idea of a dog. I love when he's chill and he's just laying down while we watch a movie, or he's sleeping, or he's on like well-behaved walk. Katie's disciplined, she was buying books before we even had him on how to train, and I'm just like, it's fine, it's easy. It's not easy, who knew? So we're on this walk, and so Chance has been doing well, and we decide, let's just let him off leash. How bad could it be? And he's been spending some time off leash. You know, he gets his time. He lives in an apartment. It's 500 square feet. He, he deserves a little bit of freedom. Katie's like, we should probably wait. And I was like, no, he's, he's, he got this. He's, he's, he's doing really well these days. So he sits, good boy. He's sitting there. He's looking eager, and I'm like, it's fine. I, I detach the leash, and he immediately beelines it to, um, to this older gentleman who is walking a few really crusty old dogs, really old. They did not want to play with a puppy who's seven months old. This was the last thing that that dog wanted to do. And so Chance proceeds to run around this, this, this old man um, for quite a while. And at this point, I'm talking with Edward about his upcoming trip. <laughs> Katie's looking at me, are you going to do something? We eventually get Chance away, and I'm like, no sweat. That was, that was just kind of a, a, a blip. Well, the walk goes on. Everything's fine. Until we get to the car, 
And Katie's like, why did you, why did you let him do that? Valid question, right? This, I am, I am the one whose idea this was. Why did you let him do that? And so this is the moment in the story where you're like, you're right, I'm sorry. No, that's not me. <laughs> Instead, I double down and I defend Chance. I'm like, no, that was a one-off. He is actually doing better than I expected. And Katie's like, you're wrong. And I'm like, no, I, he's, he is amazing. He's not amazing. He, he might look cute. He is a menace. So we then proceed to have this dialogue for in the car ride home to the point where I just refuse, which leads to about three to four hours um, where Katie is in the other room uh, and I'm on the couch, which is a metaphor for where, where I am at this, at this point in the relationship. <laughs> And Chance has wandered into the room with Katie. So Chance has also picked his side. Uh, it's, it's not me. He's like, no, Dad, I'm not good at this. And so I spend the next three hours just, just sitting on the couch. I'm like, man, this was not smart. But while it's ridiculous, I remember sitting on the couch, and instead of just going in the other room and owning this, I can just feel the, the stubbornness of my own heart and like the resentment, and I'm like, this is such a small thing. But I'm starting to be like, no, like, Katie was wrong, all these things. And I begin to like, these things start to creep into my heart. And eventually, I think I just, I just, I manned up, and I was like, after four hours, I didn't man up. I just, eventually we had to make dinner, and we had to talk to each other. <laughs> but I went out, and I was like, I'm so sorry. And there was this, there, again, like, it was fine. But if that can happen in four hours of the most petty, ridiculous fight, where those lies and the resentment in my own heart starts to become like corroded with thoughts about my wife for such a small thing, how much more does, does Satan, does the evil one want to creep in lies of deceit as we let unforgiveness fester? And so to close, a few things that I wanna touch on on just a very practical level. We have talked about the why and the reality that scripture points to this being a, a practice for all followers of Jesus to flourish in relationships. But the question is often how? I think we all to some degree are like, yes, like, relation, like, yes, we need to forgive, but how do we do this? I don't have like a self, this is not like a self-help thing. This is just simply like there are forgiveness and there are people in, in this room that I think I think we all do, have, have people that we need to forgive. And so here's just a few things that I have found helpful even this week as, I, as I've been processing unforgiveness in my own heart. And the first is the invitation is to process it. Not all situations are the same. You see, for Katie to forgive me for something minor is not something she probably had to dwell over for like a day or two to be like, do I forgive him for this? It was, it, was, it was probably on the easier side of, of forgiveness. She knew that forgiveness in that area would lead to reconciliation and our relationship being right. But there are other moments where there is some processing that needs to happen. And that's why even we as a church invest in that. Literally invest in like biblical counseling. That this is something we believe is actually so vital to relationships. That there is a, there's a process that happens as we, as we wrestle through this. And as we process, we realize that there is quite a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. To forgive is what we've been talking about, to in our own heart release that person from anything that they have done for us. 
Reconciliation is when the relationship has been fully restored on both sides and the wrongs have been dealt with. And the reality is, is that not all moments of forgiveness lead to reconciliation. There are moments where boundaries are put up in place because hurt has been caused that while they can be forgiven, you can anticipate other hurts coming into your life. This is not a hard and fast rule, and I'm no clinical therapist or counselor in this, but I think, when I think about relationships and hurts, I always feel like reconciliation is something that we should always seek. That if we can reconcile, that that is just God's kingdom breaking in. But the reality is, is that as we process, we realize that is not always possible. The second, this is the most important, probably should have gone first, is prayer. This is a big one. None of this is possible. When you think about Jesus being present as you forgive, his presence being there, that prayer is the fuel of spending time in his presence. It feels countercultural, but I would encourage you to not just pray that you would have the strength to forgive, but pray for that person. See what God does in your heart days and weeks and months of saying, God, I know this person has hurt me, but I pray for them. I pray a blessing. I pray that you would soften their heart and in the process, soften my heart. You see, prayer, I would say, is the engine of the church. And because of that, it should be the engine of our relationships and the in- as we pursue forgiveness with others. And third, we're always called to remember. The story of the scripture is one of remembrance of what God has done for us. The reminder for the Israelites was to remember what he did in delivering them out of captivity. The word remember shows up in the Old Testament a lot because we are forgetful people. But the story of scripture is one that we constantly have to remember what it is that Jesus has done for us on the cross and that we, forgiveness is only made possible in surrendering and saying, Jesus, you did this for us. You reconciled all relationships to you on the cross and we didn't deserve that. And so we model that to others as we spend time in prayer and in forgiving others. And so I want to spend some time and intentionally leave some moments here. I invite the worship team to come up. And as they come up, I invite, I invite you guys to stand and we're gonna just spend some time in prayer and in silence because I think this is not something that's just like, okay, cool, it's forgiveness, that's awesome. I believe in all of our hearts there are people and there are feelings towards others that are that there's, there's, a forgive, there's a lack of forgiveness in our hearts. And so I invite you to stand. And as you do, we're just gonna spend some time not just praying, but also listening. I encourage you as you listen, whether those are names, maybe, maybe the moment I said the word forgiveness, there's a name already on your heart of someone that you, you're like, oh, I think God's calling me to forgive them. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop talking here in a moment and I'm gonna invite the Holy Spirit to come and to soften our hearts. And I think there's um, 
someone even before the service said that there's, oftentimes when we talk about forgiveness and we leave space, there's almost a, a, a tug of war in our hearts. And I think it's a great image of choosing to forgive or not. And I wanna stay in that uncomfortability and, and surrender that, that act, that forgiveness and say, God, this is hard, but I wanna pray that you would soften my heart to forgive those who have wronged us. And so. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe that he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.